Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Sermon Extra uh, for the Sunday of July 5th. And uh, this Sunday we looked at Titus 1, both the qualifications for elders and then a discussion of false teachers. So the morning we looked at godly church leaders and then the evening ungodly church leaders. And we weren't able to get into tons of the details, but I just want to, in this sermon extra, talk about a few things, go a little bit deeper on some items, and so we might as well get into it. I'm going to have links in the show notes on these episodes that if you follow, you can look at some of these resources that I'm going to be quoting and alluding to. So uh, right off the bat, I want to look at just a little bit of a different or a deeper dig into shepherding. We talked about how the role of an elder is to direct and correct God's people by the word of God. It's an authority where he uh, is to oversee and to shepherd. And shepherding is a really good summary role. Um, The elder interns at Grace Fellowship have been studying Timothy Whitmer's book, The Shepherd Leader. He actually came and did a presentation for us as well. And I just wanted to walk through, uh, he has an awesome little just description, um, a sort of matrix, if you will, of what these shepherding responsibilities of elders are. And uh, there should be a link to it there that just takes you to a photo of what's in his book. And so what uh, Whitmer does when he's looking at shepherding, he breaks shepherding down into uh, two main um, arenas, that of the macro and the micro. So the macro being uh, the public sort of corporate ministry, and then the micro being the more personal relational ministry. And he says in these two spheres, elders are to do these four shepherding tasks, those of knowing the sheep, of feeding the sheep, of leading the sheep, and protecting the sheep. And those four actions we can look at under both of those rubrics. So uh, if we're thinking about what elders do, uh, I thought let's just look at these and to get a bit of an idea. You know, you wonder what do the elders of our church do? These are are the sorts of things elders should be focused on. So first, knowing the sheep. So knowing the sheep on a macro or corporate le- le- level will mean things like having accurate membership roles, knowing who's actually a committed member of this church, who are we responsible for and accountable to God for. And then also kind of knowing the church as a whole, knowing the flock's corporate strengths, weaknesses, traits, opportunities. What are our demographics? What are the backgrounds of most of our people? What's, what are the main issues in sort of the Zealand culture? if you will, what sort of things might we need to particularly uh, be aware of? Knowing on a macro level, knowing on a micro level is knowing the sheep personally. And so it involves, you know, we like to uh, pair elders to, to smaller districts or groups in the church. And we desire elders to really know people on an individual level, to build friendships, to have ongoing relationship with people so that Um, Everyone in the church, ideally, would be known personally by at least one elder. And so the goal there is to have ways where we can establish regular personal contact between the elders and the individual members so that they really know them, know what's going on in their lives, knowing their struggles, knowing how we can best minister, serve, and pray for them, knowing the sheep. Secondly, feeding the sheep. On a macro level, feeding the sheep... um, is evidently going to involve the the pulpit ministry, public worship, the way the Bible is taught and preached, uh, adult Sunday school, Christian education, uh, the ministry of the sacraments, 
this is corporate feeding. Often, you know, this is what we kind of mostly think of as church ministry, but it's just one part of it. Uh, feeding the sheep personally, individually, is going to involve things like uh, personal discipleship or mentoring, uh, different sort of small group ministry. And really, this can happen formally, but also informally, just uh, talking to people about the things of the Lord, engaging in spiritual conversations, praying together as things come up. Feeding. Uh, thirdly, leading. Leading the sheep corporately on the macro level uh, is casting vision for the church, setting the direction, clarifying our purpose, our mission, the sort of uh, ministry decisions we might make, um, and having leadership in the various committees. Leading on a micro level is uh, setting out a personal example. We talked a lot about how elders are supposed to be exemplary. They're supposed to be above reproach. They're supposed to be exemplary in their family life, exemplary in their character, and exemplary in their commitment to the word of God. And that's a way they lead the church, is they lead by example. And then lastly, protecting the sheep. Uh, on a macro level, this is going to be giving public instructions and warnings from the scriptures, helping there be an awareness of what sort of particular attacks might come to the church from the culture, or even from movements within the church, and also public church discipline. On a micro, personal level, this is going to be warning a brother, admonishing, rebuking, taking those first steps of church discipline to uh, bring a charge against someone. And we actually talked a lot about this in the evening message, talking about the ministry of rebuke, such as is given in Titus, where he's told to rebuke these false teachers sharply. And we talked about how uh, the sharpness of the rebuke, in a sense, goes with the hardness of the heart, from anywhere from gentle correction to strong rebuke. And we, as a church, not just elders, but all of us need to have that courageous love for one another that's willing to draw a brother back from the brink willing to put ourselves in potentially an awkward situation or a situation of potential conflict in order to see someone restored to true and pure faith. Sorry for that. Um, so that's, uh, that's Whitmer's uh, rubric for leadership in the church in that way, and I think it's really helpful just thinking of how do elders know, feed, lead, and protect publicly and personally. And something we want to be looking at uh, with the elder interns and just be thinking about as an overall ministry for the church. Okay, that was one thing I wanted to look at. Uh, another thing, as we're looking at the qualifications for elders, uh, one that I did not mention at all that is a giant wormhole, if you will, is the, uh, I guess you could say a qualification or just the idea of male leadership in the church. It's not as particular to this text as the set in Titus, and uh, there's lots to talk about here. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church we're a part of believes that eldership, the office of eldership, which is an ordained office in our church, is reserved for men. And that largely comes from 1 Timothy 2.12, which says that uh, Paul permitted not a woman to teach or exercise authority in the church. And we see uh, exercise of authority in the church to be carried out in the office of elder. And um, that, that involves both that authoritative rule of the elders, but also the authoritative teaching that comes from our teaching elders. And so um, the teaching and having authority can be seen as one thing, referring to largely the ordained office of elder. And so uh, it's been said that, you know, we believe that 
women can do anything unordained men can do in the church. It's just that ordained office of elder that is prohibited to them. And I'm going to link to actually a report that the OPC um, commissioned some men in our denomination to do that actually looks at the role of women and sort of the hermeneutics that would frame issues of women in church leadership. I'm going to link two different ones. Uh, their preliminary report on just the hermeneutics and then a second one which dives into a lot of details, looks at women eldership, uh, looks at women deacons. But although we believe in male leadership in the church, and that does distinguish us from denominations that do allow women to be ordained um, to ordained ministry. You know, the, the, the issue is not of women in ministry. Everyone believes women should minister using the gifts God's given them to serve and bless the church. The question is of ordination. Are they allowed to have an authoritative ordained office? And just two things I want to point out that I think are significant that come from the OPC report. Um, here's what they say, um, and I'm going to quote here, just one statement that really stood out to me. So they said, quote, In working at our assignment, we have been impressed with the paucity of explicit biblical evidence against women's ordination. A paucity just means uh, the lack thereof or the weakness thereof. So it could be say uh, that we've been impressed with or shocked by the lack of explicit biblical evidence against women's ordination. A paucity or lack, and I'm quoting again, that's all the more remarkable in view of the fact that some are making that issue a mark of fidelity to biblical Christianity in our time. Okay, this is huge. So the, the people that compiled this OPC report are saying that they are surprised by the lack of evidence against women's ordination in scripture. Uh, they don't believe in women's ordination. They're going to argue against women's ordination. But they're saying that there is a surprising lack of explicit evidence against this in Scripture. And so in light of the smallness of the evidence, they think it remarkable, they say, that some are making this, in a sense, the issue of fidelity or faithfulness, that is, to biblical Christianity in our time. That They're saying that some people take the issue of women in church leadership women's ordination as the mark of being biblically faithful and that such that if you engage in this practice as a denomination you've totally departed from faithfulness fidelity they say to biblical christianity and they're saying this is actually shocking in light of how little evidence there is on this issue and so that is to say by extension that there are christians that do seek to be biblically faithful. They seek to study the scriptures, to understand them accurately, who do come to a conclusion that allows for women's ordination. And the writers of this OPC report are, seem to be saying that we should not consider this issue to be one that is the mark of biblical faithfulness or not which means that we should be able to engage in church unity. We should be able to have a loving regard to brothers and sisters that differ with us on this issue, just as we seek to have loving regard and to have unity with brothers and sisters that, say, disagree with us on the issue of baptism or perhaps on the issue of spiritual gifts in the church or different ways of 
engaging culture or different styles of preaching, whatever the case may be. Um, this is an area where it's possible to disagree as brothers and sisters in the Lord, although we hold our views um, according to our own conscience, according to the word of God. So anyways, I just thought that um, that's really important to point out because this often becomes such a divisive issue that we automatically discount and in a sense throw under the bus bus anyone that disagrees with our interpretation of scripture on this subject. And maybe that seems extreme or controversial to you, but anyways, the OPC guys wrote this and I'm just pointing it out. And I'd encourage you to read their whole report. It's really, really well done as most of the OPC reports are. And secondly, I want to just also read two quotes from in their, their report on hermeneutics, they end with an exhortation to, sec, to, to sessions. And I just want to read two paragraphs from here that I thought were just really beautiful. So after looking at uh, women's roles in scriptures, in the church, in ministry, in teaching, in uh, the, all just the various ways that women are talked about in scripture, this is what they say and exhort sessions to. And I quote, Many of our churches are woefully impoverished for our failure to capture the biblical and Pauline richness and diversity of women's ministry. Our neglectfulness of the ministries and gifts of women have lost to our church the breadth and depth, color and warmth of the New Testament and Pauline pattern of Christian experience and church life. And then I'm going to skip two paragraphs and go to the last one. Quote, With respect to the ministries and gifts of women, then, it is the committee's prayer and hope that the church and her officers will be stimulated to repentance from less than biblical attitudes and practices and to deployment of all God's gifts as they are richly expressed in the talents and abilities of women in the church as well as the men. We believe that General Assembly should encourage sessions to consider ways to make greater use of the gifts of women in the total life of the church. So long as good order is not subverted by replacing or undermining or otherwise eclipsing the teaching and rule of the elders. Specific implementation should be left to the discretion of individual sessions and will no doubt vary from session to session. And may the church be wonderfully adorned in these days with gifts from her risen Lord. And just a call to us who... Um, in conservative circles have often failed to deploy and honor the gifts of women enough. I thought that was just a really beautiful exhortation coming from the committee that made this report. So if you're interested in these subjects, I'd encourage you to look more at these reports. And uh, may God grant us just um, an overabundance of just faithful women who love to serve the Lord, who love to serve his church and minister um, in, the, in the spheres and with the gifts that he's given him. Anyways, that's all I'm going to say on that before uh, I get myself into trouble or something. We'll see. Okay, looking a bit more at just some of these qualifications that are a little bit more controversial. Uh, the first one is, it's come under a lot of controversy what it means when it says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. So some people take this to mean that um, he can never um, ha be in a second marriage, even if, say, his first wife died and he remarried, or um, anyone who's divorced and remarried. Uh, some see this as just a prohibition of polygamy, such as John Calvin. But um, in, in modern reform circles, what is commonly understood by this idea of the husband of one wife is a man who is just sexually faithful or faithful in his marriage. 
the word wife is the same Greek word as the word for woman. So some would translate it as a one woman man. That is, you know, a, a man who is faithful to his marriage covenant. Uh, his, his affections are for his wife alone. He doesn't disperse his streams abroad, as the uh, Proverbs would say. So a, a man who is sexually and maritally faithful. That, that's how we would probably understand that at Grace Fellowship. And also it's come under controversy what it talks about when it says that the elder's children are believers and not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. So it's a question of like, well, what if you're, you know, does that disqualify you every newborn you have if they're not truly converted yet to Christ? Or you have a child that's just not showing fruit of repentance. Um, that's, not, that's not how most would take it. Um, it seems to be uh, pointing to a more general pattern of faithfulness and just um, faithful household management, right? We're looking at not the children's qualifications, but the father's. Does he manage his house in a way that his children um, are living just in accordance with the rules of the home that um, they're, they're not going off? And this word children does refer to little children. So it probably does not apply for those who have uh, left the home are in a sense now under their own authority where their life choices merely refre- reflect on themselves and not their parents. And I'll just read here some comments from um, 19th century commentator Albert Barnes, who I thought uh, dealt with this well. So he said that this, this term here, applied to children and rendered faithful, does not necessarily mean that they should be truly pious, but it is descriptive of those who had been well-trained and were in due subordination. If a man's family were not of this character... If his children were insubordinate and opposed to religion, if they were decided infidels or scoffers, it would show that there was such a deficiency in the head of the family that he could not be safely entrusted with the government of the church. That's from Albert Barnes. And like was said uh, yesterday, the, the idea of exemplary household management. We understand that there's some things in children that can't fully be controlled by parents, But the things that we understand can be um, influenced and controlled in behavior. We're looking at someone's children to say, are are they managing their children? Are they disciplining? Are they leading and instructing and just overall shepherding their children in a respectable, exemplary, God-honoring way that um, even if there are some issues in their child's life, that those couldn't be traced back to deficiencies in the shepherding of the parent. That's the big idea here that needs to be looked at. Okay, and the last one I want to point out is where it says that a man must be hospitable, hospitable and a lover of good. Um, Our common notion of hospitality is really sort of household entertainment. Um, I do not believe that this requirement is saying that an elder needs to be someone who frequently entertains by having his friends or maybe people in his church into his home all the time. I I think it's a broader command. It's been pointed out often that the idea is actually love of stranger. And so the more strict referent to hospitality, usually in the New Testament, is to that of putting up travelers, especially Christian brothers who are traveling from town to town. There wasn't the same sort of hotel system that we have now. 
and it was expected that Christians would show hospitality to traveling believers by opening their home to people they've even never met, but come with a recommendation from their church, and they uh, put them up and care for their needs. Just as often we hear about Paul being shown that kind of hospitality as he travels from city to city, people looked after him. And this is kind of paired with that next idea. It says a lover of good. And some translations say a lover of good men. And I I heard one of my old pastors taught about this one time and talking about how um, it's not as much about having hospitality in the home, but there's this idea more of being, what's it mean to be a hospitable person? That you in your own disposition, in your character, in the way you relate to people um, are in a sense friendly and warm and they're welcomed into your life thus that they then welcome you into their life. It's showing them that hospitality of, of person. And so um, if someone say doesn't even, Jesus didn't even have a home, but was perfectly hospitable in heart. And so a hospitable person would be, could be one who takes people out for coffee and through your warmth and your friendliness, you're showing them welcome. You're showing them the welcome of Christ, the love of Christ, by showing care for them as people, by truly listening to them and truly seeking to understand them, to know them, to care for their needs. That's the true sort of hospitality we want. Those who care about the lives of others and welcome them into their life. And yes, it's awesome when that's in your home. It's awesome when that's around the dinner table. That's wonderful. But that's not the sole marker of it. There are people who could have people into their home out of duty and still not show them true a Christian love and hospitality. So that we want the hospitality of heart and of person um, above all, which pairs with them being a lover of good, that these are men that love good wherever it's found, the good gifts of God and the good creation of God in his people. And it, as was mentioned yesterday, that uh, we, we want men who are people-loving men, not just business-loving men. And that's often a confusion in the church. Shepherding is a people-oriented task, right? It's a caring for the sheep, knowing the sheep, feeding the sheep, protecting the sheep. Um, it's, it's not a divorced, um, up-in-the-air, just strategic sort of rule. It's close, it's hospitable, and it's personal. And lastly, just one more thing from the second section uh, just, I love this quote I read from Calvin when he's looking at that quote from Epimenides that we mentioned in verse 12 of chapter 1, who was a prophet of Crete, who said the quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul brings in this quote from Ep- Epimenides in order to bolster his point and argument. And here's what Calvin had to say about that. I just thought he put this so well. And I quote, From this passage, we may infer that those persons are superstitious who do not venture to borrow anything from heathen authors. Okay, so he's saying here that it's almost superstitious if you're someone who's like, oh, like, I can't use that quote or read that book or maybe watch or listen to that thing because a non-Christian made it. Calvin's saying that's superstitious to say that, in a sense, the source has tainted everything else. I'll continue with the quote here. He says, all truth is from God. Uh, You know, there's a popular quote, all truth is God's truth. Here, Calvin's basically saying that same thing. All truth is from God, quote, And consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. Besides, all things are of God, and therefore, why should it not be lawful to, to dedicate to his glory 
everything that can properly be employed for such a purpose. End quote. And just for us to point out that um, we ought not be afraid of uh, plundering the Egyptians, as it were, of taking the good things that God, in his common grace, allows people in this world to think or discover or use, and to bring that into submission to Christ, just as we use the technology created by unbelievers. Um, so they, they do come up with good ideas at times, good tips for life and lifestyle, for health, fitness, um, good, good ideas in terms of um, psychology or economics. That, um, that doesn't mean that just because they're an unbeliever that they're not able to discover truth. Uh, God's created truth in this world to be discovered. And just as we, um, through looking, can discover the truths about science or of math or logic, so there's other truths that can be discovered. And so there's much we can learn from those who are unbelievers. And we, we need discernment. We need wisdom as we do that. And we need to check it all by the scriptures. But we um, need not have what Calvin is calling here a superstitious um, fear, as it were, of just, well, what was the source of this? And if the source was not totally in line with what I think, I have to reject absolutely everything that comes from them. Uh, so that's the last I have on that. Um, again, the application was, you know, let's look at these qualifications and use this as a guide for our life, things we should be pursuing. Um, it's, it's a guide for godly manhood, not just men who want to be elders. And really, these qualities could relate to all Christians. And so it behooves us to look at them, to study them, to apply them to our lives. We all need to grow in being hospitable lovers of good, to be self-controlled, being upright, holy, disciplined. Man, we need a lot of self-discipline in our age. And we all ought to be striving to be exemplary Christians, to be above reproach, because we want to live more like Jesus. And that's what we want. He's given us his Holy Spirit to change us, to renew us, that we might actually grow in these areas, to walk in them. And as we do this, we do this trying to avoid adding to the word of God. We do it trying to avoid taking away from the word of God. And we follow after this. So uh, thanks for listening to the Sermon Extra. Hope this was helpful to you. And do take a look if you're interested in any of those resources linked above. And uh, have a God-blessed day.